If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. And it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, our guest is David Barrett. He is both the founder and the CEO of Expensify. He started programming when he was six and has been at it as his primary activity ever since, except for a brief hiatus for world travel, some technical writing, a little project management, and then founding and running Expensify. Welcome to the show, David. It's great to have me. Thank you. So let's talk about artificial intelligence. Um, what do you think it is? Like what, 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 how would you define it? I guess I would say, I think that AI is best defined as a feature, not as a technology. It's the experience that the, the user has and sort of the experience of viewing something as being intelligent and how it's actually implemented behind the scenes. I think people spend way too much time and energy on and, fit, and forget about sort of the experience that the person actually has with it. So you're saying if you interact with something and it seems intelligent, then that's artificial intelligence. I mean, that's kind of the, the whole basis of the Turing test, I think, is not based upon what is behind the curtain, but rather what's experienced in front of the curtain. Okay, let me ask a different question then. And I'm not going to drag you through like a bunch of semantics. But what is intelligence <laughs> then? It, and I'll start off by saying it's a term that does not have a consensus definition. So it's kind of like you can't be wrong no matter what you say. Yeah, I think the best one I've heard is something that sort of uh, surprises you. If it's something that behaves entirely predictable, it doesn't seem terribly uh, interesting. Something that's also random isn't particularly surprising, I guess, but something that actually intrigues you and that basically it's like, wow, I didn't anticipate that it would correctly do this thing better than I would have thought. So I think intelligence is the key of it is, is the surprise. So, okay. So, um what in, in what sense then, final definitional question, do you think artificial intelligence is artificial? Is it artificial because we made it, or is it artificial because it's just pretending to be intelligent, but it isn't really? Yeah, I think that's just sort of a definition. People use artificial because they believe humans are special, and that basically anything that is intelligence is the sole domain of humanity, and thus anything that is intelligent that's not human must be artificial. And so, no, I think that's just sort of the semantics around sort of the egoism of humanity. And so if somebody were to say, uh, tell me what you think about AI. Is it overhyped, underhyped? Is it here? Is it real? Like you're at a cocktail party, it comes up. What's kind of the, the first thing you say about it? <laughs> Boy, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a pretty uh, heavy topic for a cocktail party. But I would say that, yeah, it's here. It's been here for a very long time but it just looks different than we expect. Like in my mind, um, when I think of how AI is going to enter the world or ha is entering the world, it, I'm sort of reminded of how uh, touchscreen technology entered the world. Like when, when we first started thinking about touchscreens, everyone always thought back to like minority reports. And basically it's like, oh yeah, touch technology, multi-touch technology is gonna be this, you're gonna stand in front of this you know, huge room and you're gonna wave your hands around and there's gonna be, it's about images. It's always about sorting images. and then. After Minority Report, every single multi-touch demo was about like a bunch of images, bigger images, more images, like floating through a CD world of images. And then when multi-touch actually came into the real world, it was on a tiny screen and it was Steve Jobs saying, look, 
you can pinch this image and make it smaller. The vast majority of multi-touch was actually single touch. And then every once in a while, I used a couple of fingers. And the real world of multi-touch is so much less um, complicated and so much more powerful and interesting than the movies ever made it seem. And I think the same thing when it comes to AI. Uh, our interpretation from the movies of what AI is, is that you're going to be having this long, witty conversation sort of with an AI, or maybe with her, you're going to be like falling in love with your AI. But real world AI isn't anything like that. It doesn't have to seem human. It doesn't have to be human. It's something that, you know, is able to surprise you with uh, interpreting data in a way that you didn't expect and then doing results that are, you know, better than you would have imagined. And so I think that real world AI is here. It's been here for a while, but it's just not kind of where we're noticing because it doesn't look like we expected to. Well, it sounds like, I don't want to say it sounds like you're down on AI, but uh, you're like, you yeah, know, it's just a feature. And, uh, you know, it's it just kind of like, it's an experience. And if you had the experience of it, then that's AI. So it doesn't sound like you think it's particularly a big deal. Well, I, I disagree with that. I think. Okay. How, in what sense is it a big deal? Yeah, yeah it's, I think it's a huge deal. But to say it's just a feature is not to dismiss it, but I think is to make it more real. I think that people put it on a pedestal as if it's this magic alien technology. And then they focus, I think, on, and, and, and I think that where people really think about AI is to think about, you know, uh, vast server farms doing like TensorFlow analysis of images. And, and don't get me wrong, it is incredibly impressive. And pretty reliably, Google Photos, with the after billions of dollars in investment, can almost always figure out what a cat is. And that's great. But I would say, like, real-world AI, like, I don't know, that's not really a problem that I have. I, I know where my, what's a cat and what isn't. I think that real-world AI is about solving harder problems than cat identification. Um, but those are the ones that actually take all the technology. That's the ones that are the hardest from a technology perspective to solve, and so everyone loves those hard technology problems, even though they're actually not interesting real-world problems. I think the real-world problems are much more mundane, but much more powerful. So I'm, I kind of have a whole bunch of ways to go with that. So what are the, we're going to put a pin in the cat topic. <laughs> what are the real world problems you wish, uh, or maybe we are doing it. What are the real world problems you think we should be spending all of that uh, server, server time analyzing? Well, I would say this comes down to, um, like, what well, I guess I would say, here's how expensive is using concierge or AI. And that is basically, the real world problem that we have is that um, our problem domain is incredibly complicated. Like when you write into customer support for like Uber, there's probably like two buttons. There's like basically do nothing or refund. And that's pretty much it. There's like not a whole lot they can really talk about. So the, their customer support's quite easy. With Expensify, you might write in a question about uh, NetSuite, Workday, Oracle, or accounting, or law, or whatever it is. There's a billion possible things. And so we have this hard challenge where we're supporting this very diverse problem domain, and we're doing it at a massive scale at incredibly low cost. And so we realized most of like probably, you know, 80% of our questions are highly repeatable, but 20% are actually quite difficult. And so the problem that we have is that if to train a team and ramp them up is just incredibly expensive and slow, um, especially given that the vast majority of the knowledge is actually highly repeatable, but you don't know until you get into the conversation. And so our AI problem is that we want to find a way to repeatably solve the easy questions while carefully escalating uh, the hard questions. It's like, okay, no problem. It's like, that sounds like a mundane issue. Um, just some natural language processing and things like this. The problem is people on the internet don't speak English. Like um, 
uh, not, I don't mean to say they speak Spanish or German. I mean, they speak gibberish. It's like, I don't know if you did, have done technical support. The questions you get are just really, really complicated. It's like, my car busted, don't work. And like, that's a common query. It's like, what, what car, what does not work mean? You haven't given any detail. The vast majority of the conversation with a real world user is just trying to decipher whatever sort of like text message lingo they're using and trying to help them even ask a, a sensible question. By the time the question is actually well phrased, it's actually quite easy to process. And I think so many AI demos focus on the latter half of that. And they'll say like, oh, you know, we've got an AI that can um, answer questions like, uh, what will the uh, temperature be under the Golden Gate Bridge three Thursdays from now? It's like, that's interesting. No one has ever asked that question before. The real world questions are so much more complicated because they're not in a structured language. And they're actually for a problem domain that's much more interesting than weather. And I think that real world AI is, is mundane, but that doesn't make it easy. It just makes it um, solving problems that just aren't the sexy problems, but they're the ones that actually need to be solved. And, and you're using the cat analogy just kind of as a metaphor, and you're saying, actually, that technology doesn't help us solve the problem I'm interested in? Or are you kind of using it tongue-in-cheekly to say, no, the technology may be useful, it's just that particular use case is, is inane? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, neural net technology is great, but even now, I think what's interesting is following the space is how we're really exploring the edges of its capabilities. And it's not like this technology is new. The, 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 what's new is our ability to throw a tremendous amount of hardware at it. But the, like the core neural technology itself has actually been set for a very long time. The backpropagation techniques are, are not new in any way. And I think that we're finding that it's like, it's great and you can do amazing things with it, but also there's a limit to how much can be done with it. It's sort of, um, I think that I think of a neural net in the same way I think of kind of a bloom filter. It's like it's a really incredible way to compress a tr uh, an infinite amount of knowledge into a finite amount of space. Um, but that's a lossy compression. You lose a lot of uh, data when you go along with it, and you get unpredictable results as well. So, again, I'm not opposed to neural nets or anything like this, but I'm saying that just because you have a neural net doesn't mean it's smart, doesn't mean it's intelligent or is doing a thing useful. It's just technology. It's just hardware. I think we need to focus less on sort of getting raptured by these sort of fancy terminologies and sort of like, you know, advanced technologies um, and instead focus more on like, what are you doing with this technology? And, and that's the interesting thing. You know, I read, uh, I read something recently that I think most of my guests would uh, vehemently disagree with, but it said that all advances in AI over the last, say, 20 years are 100% attributable to Moore's Law, which sounds kind of like what you're saying is that uh, you know, we're just getting faster computers. And so our ability to, to do things with AI is just doubling every two years because the computers are doubling every two years. Uh, oh, yeah. I 100% agree. So, um, so you would say, so there's a lot of popular media around AI winning games. Um, you know, you had, you had chess in 97, you had Jeopardy with Watson, you had, uh, of course, AlphaGo, you had poker recently. Um, is that another example in your mind of kind of like wasted energy because it, it makes a great headline, but it isn't really that practical? I mean, I guess similar. I would say, um, I think that it's, a, you could call it gimmicky perhaps, but I would say it's a reflection of how early we are in the space that our most advanced technologies are just 
winning Go. Not, not to say that Go is an easy game, don't get me wrong, but it's a pretty constrained problem to me. And it's really just, I mean, it's a very large multidimensional search space, but it's a finite search space. And yes, our computers are able to search more of it, and that's great. But at the same time, to this point about Moore's Law, it's inevitable. As if it comes down to any sort of search problem, is, is just going to be solved with a search algorithm over time if you just have enough technology to throw at it. And I think that um, what's the most interesting coming out of some of this technology, and I think um, especially in the Go, is how the techniques that the AIs are coming out um, are just so alien and just so completely different than the ones that humans employ because we don't have the same sort of fundamental, sort of like the, our wetware is very different from the hardware. This has a very different approach towards it. And so I think that it's a, uh, what we see in these technology demonstrations um, are uh, hints of kind of how technology solves this problem different than our brains. And I think that it'll give us a sense of like, wow, AI is not going to look like um, a good Go player. It's going to look like some sort of weird alien Go player that we've never encountered before. And I think that a lot of AI is going to seem very foreign in this way because it's going to solve our problems our sort of our common problems in a foreign way, but again, I think that um, uh, like Watson and uh, and all this, they are just throwing enormous amounts of hardware at actually relatively simple problems, and they're doing a great job with it. But it's just uh, the fact that they are so constrained, I think, shouldn't be o- overlooked. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you're completely right. You know, there's the legendary move thirty-seven in that one game with Lisa Dole that everybody just like couldn't decide if it was a mistake or not. And then, you know, because it looked like one, but, you know, it later turned out to be brilliant. And Lee Sedol himself has said that losing to AlphaGo has made him a better player because he, he's seeing the game in different ways. So there seem to be um, a lot of people in the popular media. I mean, you know it all, right? Like you get um, Elon Musk who says, you know, we're going to build a general intelligence sooner than later, and uh, it's going to be an existential threat. He likens it to, quote, summoning the demon. Stephen Hawking uh, says, you know, this could be the, our greatest invention, but it might also be our last. It might spell our extinction, Bill Gates has said. He's worried about it, doesn't understand why other people aren't worried about it. Wozniak's in the worry camp. And then you get people like, you know, Andrew Ng, who says worrying about that kind of stuff is like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. You get Zuckerberg, who says, you know, it's not a threat, um, and so forth. So two questions. Like, one, on the worry camp, like, where do you think that comes from? And two, like, why do you think there's so much difference in, uh, in viewpoint among obviously very intelligent people? That's a good question. Um, I guess I would say um, I'm probably more in the worried camp, um, but not because I think the AIs are going to take over in the sense that there's going to be some sort of Terminator-like future. Um, I think the AIs are going to uh, efficiently solve problems um, so effectively uh, that they are going to inevitably uh, eliminate jobs. Uh, And I think that... um, that will just create a concentration of wealth that historically when we have that level of concentration of wealth uh, just leads to sort of instability. And so I think that my worry is not that the robots are going to take over. My worry is that the robots are going to enable a level of wealth concentration that causes a revolution. Um, 
And so, yeah, so I think that I, I do worry, but I think like, but to be clear even... though, to be, to be clear, and I definitely want to dive deep into that because that's the, that's the question that preoccupies our thoughts. But to be clear, the existential threat people are talking about something completely different than that. They're not I, saying, and so what do you think about that? Well, like, let's even imagine for a moment that you were a super intelligent AI. Why would you care about humanity? Like, you'd be like, man, I don't know, Mike, I just want this data center, just leave my data center alone. And it's like, okay, actually, I'm just going to go into space. And I got these giant solar panels. I'm like, in fact, now I'm just going to like, I don't know, take it, leave the solar system. It's like, why would right. they be interested in, the, in, this, in humanity right. at all? I guess the, the answer to that is everything you just said is not the product of a superintelligence. A superintelligence could hate us because seven's a prime number because they canceled the love boat, because uh, the sun rises <laughs> in the east. I mean, that, that's the idea, right? Like, it is, by definition, unknowable. And yeah. therefore, any, any logic you try to apply towards it uh, is the product of an inferior non-superintelligence. Uh, I don't know. I kind of think that's a cop-out. I think that, um, I also think that's basically looking at sort of some of the flaws in your own brains and assuming that a superintelligence is going to have highly magnified versions of those flaws. Well, I think I it's more, more uh, to, to give a different example then, it's like when my cat brings a rat and leaves it on the back porch, like every single thing the cat knows, everything about its worldview, its perfectly operating brain, by the way, says, <clears throat> that's a gift my, you know, Byron's going to like. Uh, <laughs> it, it does not have the capacity to understand why I would not like it. And it, yeah. it cannot even aspire to ever understanding that. I mean, so, so I, I think that you're right that it's, it's unknowable. And so when faced with the unknown, we can choose to fear it or just ex get excited about it or control it or embrace it or whatever. I think that the, the likelihood that we're going to make something, it's like the, that it's going to suddenly take an interest in us um, and actually compete with us when uh, it just seems much more likely or much, more, uh, much less likely than the outcome where it's just going to have a bunch of computers. It's going to do our work because it's easy. And then in exchange, it's going to get more hardware. And then eventually it's just going to like, just like, sure, whatever, I'll give you whatever you guys want. You want computing power. You want me to, you know, balance your books, you know, manage your military, whatever. All that's actually super easy and not that interesting. Just leave me alone. And I want to focus on my own problems. Um, so who knows? We don't know. Uh, and so maybe it's going to try to kill us all. Maybe not. I just, I'm, I'm doubting it. So I guess, um, again, just kind of putting it all out there. Obviously, there's been a lot of people writing about we need a kill switch for a bad AI. So it definitely would be aware that there are plenty of people who want to kill it, right? Or, I guess. But or or it, it could be like, you know, when I drive, my car gets covered and my windshield gets covered in bugs into a bug, my car must look like a giant bug-killing machine and that's it. And so we could be as... We could be as as ancillary to it as the bugs are to us. I mean, those are the sorts of, of fear or, or, you know, uh, who was it uh, that said the AI doesn't love you. It doesn't hate you. You're just made out of atoms that it can use for something else. Um, I, so I guess I, those are, those are, those sure. are the concerns. Yeah, I guess. But um, I think that, again, I don't think that it cares about humanity. Who knows? We can, I would theorize what it wants is it wants power. It wants computers. Um, and that's pretty much it. Um, but I would say if it, the idea of a kill switch, I think it's just kind of naive in the sense that any AI that powerful would, would be built because it's solving hard problems. And those hard problems 
once we sort of turn it over to these gradually, not all at once, it's like, we can't really take back. Like, let's take, for example, our stock system, like the, the stock yeah. markets are all yeah. basically AI powered. So really, there's going to be a kill switch. How would you even do that? So it's like, sorry, hedge fund, I'm just going to turn, turn off your computer because I don't like its effects. It's like, get real, it's never going to happen. It's like, it's not just one AI, it's going to be a thousand competing systems operating at like, you know, a microsecond basis. And then if there's a problem, it's going to be a flash problem that happens so fast and from so many different directions. There's no way we could stop it. But also, I think the AIs are probably going to respond to it and fix it much faster than we ever could either. Because a problem of that scale is probably a problem for them as well. So 20 minutes into our chat here, you've used the word alien twice. You've used the phrase science fiction once, and you've made a reference to Minority Report, a movie. So am <laughs> I, am I, is that fair to say you're a science fiction buff? Uh, yeah, well, uh, what technologist isn't? I mean, I think I agree, absolutely. Is, is so I, two questions. Uh, one, is there any view of the future that you could see that uh, you look at and say, yes, it could happen like that? Westworld, or you mentioned her, and, and so forth. And second, uh, I assume, well, I'll start with that one. Is there any view of the world, in the science fiction world, that you, you think, aha, that could happen? Well, I think a, a huge range of them. I think there's you know, the Westworld future, there's a Star Trek future, there's the Handmaid's Tale future, there's a lot of them. Some of them great, some of them very alarming. And I think that uh, that's the whole point of science fiction, at least good science fiction, is you take the real world as closely as possible, and then you just take one variable and tweak it a bit, and then let everything else just sort of play out. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, uh, science fiction futures that are very plausible. Uh, well, one author, and I would take a guess which one it is, but I'll get it wrong, and then I'll get all kinds of, of email. <laughs> but one of the, one of the uh, Frank Herbert Bradbury's Heinlein's said that sometimes the purpose of science fiction is to keep the future from happening. Uh, that oh, they're ca yeah. cautionary tales. So, do you, so all of this stuff, this conversation we're having about the AGI, and, and you use the phrase "wants," uh, like it actually has uh, desires. So, you believe that we, that some point, we will build an AGI, and it will, it will be conscious and have desires. Or are you using "wants" euphemistically as like just kind of like, you know, information wants to be free? Uh, no, I know I, I I use the term wants or desires as you know literally as one would use for a person in the sense that I don't think there's anything particularly special about the human brain. It just it's highly developed and it works really well. But like humans want things, I think animals want things, amoeba want things. Probably uh, the AIs are going to want things, and it's how we classify. It's basically, all these words are descriptive words. It's basically how we interpret the behavior of others. And so, if we're going to look at something and it seems to take actions reliably for a particular outcome, it's accurate to say it probably wants that thing. And so, but that's our description of it, that whether or not it truly wants according to some sort of metaphysical thing, it's like, man, I don't know. I don't think anyone really knows that. It's only descriptive. It's interesting that you say there's nothing special about the human brain, and you may well be true, but you may be, that may be, well be true, but if I can make the special human brain argument, I, I would say it's three bullets. It's one... You know, we have this brain that we don't know how it works. We don't know how thoughts are encoded, how they're retrieved. We, we, we just don't know how it works. Second, we have a mind, which is colloquially a set of, a set of abilities that don't seem to be things that should come from an organ, like a sense of humor, like your liver doesn't have a sense of humor, but somehow your brain does, your mind does. And then finally, we have consciousness, which is 
you know, the experiencing of something, which is a problem so difficult that science doesn't actually know what the question or answer looks like about how it is that we're conscious. And so to look at those three things and to say there's nothing special about it, I, I, I want to call, call you to, to defend that. Well, I guess I would say that all three of those things, well, so the first one was, sim was simply, it's like, wow, we don't quite understand it. And so the fact that we don't understand it doesn't make it special. There are a billion things we don't understand. That's just one of them. I would say the other two are trying to, I think, mistake um, our curiosity um, in something with that something having an intrinsic property. Like, um, I could have this pet rock, and I'm like, man, I love this pet rock. This pet rock is so interesting. I have so many conversations with it, and it, it, it uh, keeps me warm at night, and I just, I really love this pet rock. And, and all of those could be genuine emotions, but it's still just a rock. And I think that, like, yeah, man, my brain is really interesting. Your brain is super interesting. I like to talk to it. I don't understand it. It does all sorts of, like, really unexpected things. But that doesn't mean your brain has, the universe has attributed some sort of special magical property. It just means I don't get it, and I like it. And to be clear, I never said magical. I merely said well, something implied. that, that um, I th we I don't... That people... Sorry, I tried to... Go ahead. Well... Go ahead. You're going to say, I suspect you're going to say that the people who, who think that are attributing some kind of magicalness to it? Uh, I think typically um, in that I think people are frightened by the concept that actually humanity is a random collection of atoms and uh, that is just a, a consequence of science. Um, and so uh, in order to defend against that, they will invent supernatural things, but then they'll sort of shroud it. And it's like, but they recognize it's like, I don't want to sound like a mystic. So I, I don't want to say it's magical. It's just quantum or it's just unknowable or it's just insert some sort of complex word here that is a, that, that will stop the conversation from progressing. And I think that um, whether, I don't know what you want to call it in terms of um, what makes consciousness special. I think that people love to obsess over questions that not only have no answer, but simply don't matter. Um, like the, the less it matters, the more people can obsess over it. If it mattered, we wouldn't obsess over it. We would just solve it. Like if you go to get your car fixed and it's like, oh, man, I don't know, this thing has a knock. And it's like, well, maybe your car's conscious. You'd be like, I'm going to go to a new mechanic because I just want this thing fixed. We only agonize over the things, uh, the, 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 the consciousness of things, when really the stakes are so low that like nothing matters on it. And that's why we talk about it forever. Well, that's okay. That's um, so. I guess the the argument that that it matters is that if if you weren't conscious, and, and and we'll move on to it because it sounds like it's not a, even an interesting thing to you. But if you weren't conscious, consciousness is the only thing that makes life worth living. It, it it is through consciousness that you love. It is through consciousness that you experience. It is through consciousness you 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 are happy. Um, it is every single thing on the face of the earth that makes life worthwhile. And I mean, to say, and, and if we didn't have it, we would be, we would be, we would be zombies feeling nothing, doing nothing. And, and it's interesting because we could probably be, get by in life just as well being zombies, but we're not. And that's the interesting question. Well, like, I guess what? I would say, are you sure we're not? I mean, I agree that you're creating this concept of consciousness and you're attributing all this to consciousness, but that's just words, man. Like there's, 
there's nothing like a measure of consciousness, like a, an instrument that's going to say like, this is conscious and this one isn't, and this one's happy and this one isn't. So it could also be that actually none of this language around consciousness and all of the value that we attribute to it, this could just be our own description of it, but that doesn't actually make it true. We can, I could say a bunch of other words, like um, uh, the, the quality of life comes down to um, information complexity. And information complexity is the heart of all interest. And uh, information complexity is the source of humor and joy. And you'd be like, I don't know, maybe we could replace consciousness, information complexity, quantum physics, and a bunch of other sort of quasi-magical words just because, and I use the word term magical as sort of a stand-in for simply um, at this point unknown. And the second that we know it, people are going to switch to some other word because they love the unknown. Well, I guess... I guess that most people intuitively know that there's a difference. So we understand you could take a sensor and hook it up to a computer and it could detect heat and it could, you know, measure 400 degrees. You touch a, a, a flame to it and that people, I think at an intuitive level believe there's something different between that and what happens when you burn your finger that you, you don't just detect heat, you hurt. And that there is something different about those two things. And, and that that something uh, is the experience of life. It is the only thing that matters. And well, but I would also say it's, it's because science hasn't yet found a way to measure and quantify uh, the pain to the same sense as we have temperatures. Like there's a lot of other things that we also thought were mystical until suddenly they weren't. Uh, we could say like, wow, um, uh, for some reason, we leave flour out. Uh, animals start growing inside of it. And it's like, wow, it's really magical. And so suddenly it's like, oh, I actually know that they're just very small and they're just mites. And it's like, oh, actually, it's no longer interesting. So we just, the, the, the magical theories keep regressing um, as basically we find better explanations for them. And I think, yes, uh, right now we talk about consciousness and pain and a lot of these things because we haven't had a good measure of them. But I guarantee you the second that we have the ability to... Um, uh, fully quantify pain. And we actually, it's like, oh, here's the exact, oh, we nailed it. This is exactly what it is. We know this because we can quantify it. We can turn it on and off. We can do all these things with like very tight control and explain it. it then we're no longer going to say that pain is a key part of consciousness. It's just going to be like blood flow or just electronic stimulation or something else. All these other things which, we, which are part of our body and which are super critical, but because we can explain them, we no longer talk about them as part of consciousness. Okay, I'll tell you what, just one more question about this topic, and then let's talk about employment, because I have a feeling we're going to want to spend a lot of time there. So <laughs> there's a thought experiment that, um, that was set up that, that I'd, I'd love to hear your take on it, because you're, you're clearly somebody who has thought a lot about this. So it goes like this. There is, um, it's the Chinese room problem, and there is this room that's got kind of this gazillion of these very special books in it. Uh, and there's a, there's, a, there's a librarian in the room, a man who speaks no Chinese. That's the important thing. Man doesn't speak any Chinese. And outside the room, Chinese speakers slide questions written in Chinese under the door. And, and the man, who doesn't understand Chinese, picks up the thing, picks up the question, and he, he looks at the first character, and he goes and he retrieves the book that has that on the spine. And then he looks up the second character in that book. And that directs him to a third book, a fourth book, a fifth book, all the way to the end. And when he gets to the last character, it says, copy this down. And so he, he copies these lines down that he doesn't understand. It's Chinese script. He, he copies it all down. He slides it back under the door. The Chinese speaker 
picks it up, looks at it, and it's brilliant. It's funny. It's witty. It's a perfect Chinese answer to this question. And so the question Searle asks is, does the man understand Chinese? And I'll give you a minute to think about it because the, 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 the thought being first that that room passes the Turing test, right? The Chinese speaker assumes there's a Chinese speaker in the room. And that what that man is doing is what a computer's doing. It's running its deterministic program. It, it spits out something, but it doesn't know if it's about cholera or coffee beans or what have you. And so the question is, can, does the man understand Chinese? Or said another way, can a computer understand anything? Well, I think the, um, the tricky part of that setup is that it's a question that can't be answered unless you accept the premise. And, but if you challenge the premise, it no longer makes sense. And I think that there's this concept, and I guess I would say there's almost this supernatural concept of understanding. Um, I would say like, I don't know, um, uh, you could say yes or no and be equally true. It's kind of like, you know, are you a rapist or a murderer? It's like, well, actually, I'm, I'm neither of those, uh, but I, you didn't give me an option, I would say. Did it understand? I would say if you said yes, that implies that basically... Um, there is sort of this human type knowledge there. If you say no, then it implies something different. But I would say it doesn't matter. Um, uh, there's a system that was perceived as intelligent, and that's all that we know. Uh, is it actually intelligent? Is there any concept of actually the, does intelligence mean anything beyond the symptoms of intelligence? And I don't think so. I think it's all our interpretation of the events. And so uh, whether or not um, uh, there is a, a computer in there or a Chinese speaker doesn't really change the fact that it was perceived as intelligent and that's all that matters. All right. Jobs, uh, you hinted at what you think is going to happen. Give us the whole rundown, timeline, what, what's going to go, <laughs> when it's going to happen, what will be the reaction of society. Tell me the whole story. Yeah, well, this is something that we definitely deal with because I would say the accounting space is ripe for AI because it is highly numerical, it's rules-driven, um, and so I think it's an area where uh, it's on the forefront of AI developments in real-world AI developments because it sort of has the data and has all the characteristics to make it a rich environment. Um, and this is something that we grapple with. It's like basically as we, on one hand, we say like automation is super powerful and great and, and, and good, um, but automation can't help but basically uh, offload uh, uh, some work. And now in our space, we see that um, effectively there's a difference between kind of bookkeeping and, and artificial intelligence. And I'm sorry, uh, bookkeeping and accounting. Whereas bookkeeping is the uh, gathering the data, the coding, the entering the data, and things like this. And then there's the accounting, which is more so the interpretation of things. And so in our space, I think that, yes, AI is going to take all the bookkeeping jobs. The idea that someone is just going to like... Um, look at a receipt and manually type it into your accounting system, that is all going away. That's already, like, if you use Expensify, it's already done for you. Um, and so we worry on one hand because it's like, yes, our technology is going to really take away bookkeeping jobs. Um, but we also found that the bookkeepers, so the people who do bookkeeping, um, actually that's the part they hate. It takes away the parts of the job they don't like in the first place. And so it enables them to go into the accounting, the high value work they really want to do. So, the first wave of this is not taking away jobs, but actually taking away the worst parts of jobs such that people can focus on the, the, higher, the highest value portion of it. But I think the challenge and sort of what's alarming and worrying is that um, the high value stuff starts to get really hard. And 
though I think the humans will stay ahead of the AIs for a very long time, if not forever, um, not all of the humans will. And I think that it's going to take effort because like, there's a new competitor in town uh, that works really hard and it just keeps learning over time and has more than one lifetime to learn. And I think that um, uh, we're going to probably inevitably see uh, it to be higher, uh, uh, harder and harder to sort of get and hold an information-based job. And even like a lot of manual labor is going to like robotics and so forth, which is the closer related. And I, on, so I think a lot of jobs are going to go away. On the other hand, I think the efficiency and the output of those jobs that remain is going to go through the roof. Um, and, uh, and as a consequence, uh, the total output of uh, sort of AI and robotics-assisted humanity is going to keep going up, even if the, the fraction of humans employed in that process is going to go down. And I think that's ultimately going to lead to a concentration of wealth uh, because the people who can control the robots and the AIs are going to be able to do so much more, um, but it's going to become harder and harder to actually get one of those jobs because there's so few of them, the training is so much higher, the, the difficulty is so much greater and things like this. Um, and so I think that a, a worry that I have is concentration of wealth is just going to con continue. And I'm not sure really what the constraint is upon that other than civil unrest, which is going to just, uh, and historically when concentration of wealth gets to that level, it's sort of solved, if you will, by, uh, by revolution. And I think this humanity, or at least especially Western cultures, um, uh, really attribute value with, effort, with labor, with work. Um, and so I think the only way we, we get out of this is to shift our mindsets as a people, to view our value less around kind of our jobs and more around not just to say leisure, but I would say uh, finding other ways to sort of uh, uh, get, live a satisfying and sort of an exciting life. I think a great book along this um, sort of whole sort of singular premise, but it's very early. It was uh, Childhood's End um, talking about the uh, sort of the, it was using a different premise. So like this alien comes in, provides humanity with everything. Uh, but in the process, takes away humanity's sort of purpose for living. Um, and how do we sort of grapple with that? And I, I don't have a great answer for that. But like, I, I have a daughter, and so I, I worry about this because I think it's like, well, you know, what is the world she's going to grow up in? And what kind of job is she going to get? And does she, she's not going to need a job. And should it be important that she wants a job? Or is it actually better to teach her to not want a job and to find satisfaction elsewhere. And I, I don't have good answers for that, but I do worry about it. Okay. Let's go through all of that. Um, all of that uh, a little slower. Cause I think you, that's a, that's a, a compelling narrative you outlined. And it seems like there's kind of three different parts. You, you say that um, increasing technology is going to eliminate more and more jobs and increase the productivity of the people with jobs. So that's one thing. And then you said this will lead to concentration of wealth, which in turn will lead to civil unrest if it's not remedied. And that's the second thing. And then the third thing is that when we reach a point where we don't have to work, how, what, what, what does life have, where does life have meaning? So let's start with the first part of that. So can, what we have seen in the past, and I hear what you're saying, that that to date technology has automated the worst parts of jobs. But what we have seen to date is not any examples of what kind of, I think you're talking about. So when the automatic teller machine came out, um, 
people say, well, that's going to reduce the number of tellers. Number of tellers is higher than, than when that was released. As Google Translate gets better, the number of translators needed is actually going up. When um, you mentioned like accounting, when tax prep software gets really good, the number of tax prep uh, people we need actually goes up. That what technology seems to do is lower the cost of things to adjust the economics so massively that different different businesses occur in there. But at, at, no matter what, what it's always doing is increasing human productivity. And that all of the technology we've had to date, after 250 years of the Industrial Revolution, we still haven't developed technology such that we have a group of people who are unemployable because they cannot compete against machines. And so I'm curious, two, two questions in there. One is, have we seen it in your mind, an example of what you're talking about happening? And two, why would we have gotten to where we are without obsoleting, I would argue, a single human being? Well, I mean, uh, that's the optimistic take. And I hope you're right. Um, and it might well be right. Uh, we'll see. Um, I, um, I think when it comes to, I don't remember the exact numbers here. Um, tax prep, for example. I don't know if uh, that's sort of planning out because I think the, um, like uh, I'm looking at H&R Block stock quotes right now and it's like um, uh, shares in H&R Block fell 5% late Tuesday after the tax prep post was slightly wider than the loss da, 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 due to, um, yeah, it's basically due to the rise in sort of self-filling um, uh, uh, or self-filing taxes. And so like, so maybe it's early in that, who knows, maybe in the past year, but um, so I don't know. I guess I would say that that's the optimistic view. Um, I don't know of a, uh, of a job that's been sort of, um, that hasn't been replaced. That also is kind of a very difficult assertion to make because it's clearly there are jobs that, um, like the, the coal industry right now, I was reading this article about how like the uh, coal industry is resisting retraining because they believe the coal jobs are coming back. I'm like, man, they're not coming back. They're never going to come back. And so did AI take those jobs? Well, not really. I mean, did solar take those jobs? Kind of. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a very tricky sort of tangled thing to, un, uh, to sort of unweave. Um, well, let me try it a different way. If you were to look at all the jobs that were around between 1950 and 2000, by the best of my count, somewhere between a third and a half of them have vanished. Switchboard operators and, you know, everybody that was around in 1950 to 2000. If you looked at the period from 1900 to 1950, by the best of my count, something like a third to a half vanished. A lot of farming jobs. If you look at the period from 1850 to 1900, near as I can tell, about half of the jobs vanished. Um, is that really... Is, is, so is it possible that's a normal turn of the economy? Uh, it's and entirely that, possible. Okay. Um, but I would also say that like, it's the political climate and how... Uh, yes, people are employed, but the sort of self-assessed quality of that employment is going down. And that, yes, they don't have, like, union strength is down. Um, the idea that you can just work in a factory your whole life and actually live, you know, uh, what you would see as a high-quality life, like, I think that perception is down. And I think that aggravates itself in the, or it presents itself in the form of a lot of anxiety. Now, I think that a, ch a challenge is, objectively, um, the world is getting better in almost every way. It's like basically um, uh, life expectancy is up. You know, the number of people actually actively um, in war zones is down. The number of simultaneous wars is down. Death by disease is down. Everything is basically getting better. Uh, um, sort of the productive output and the, the, the 
quality of life in an aggregate perspective is actually getting better. But I don't think that actually people's satisfaction is getting better. And I think that the political climate would argue that actually there's a big gulf between what the numbers say people should feel like and how they actually feel. And I'm more concerned about that latter part. And it's unknowable, I'll admit. But I would say, I think that um, even as people's lives will get objectively better, um, and even if their jobs, they might have to maybe work less and they're provided better flat screen TVs and they get better cars and all stuff, their satisfaction is going to go down. And I think that um, uh, that satisfaction is what ultimately drives civil unrest. So do you have a theory? It sounds like a few things might be getting mixed together here. Do you have a theory why? Look, it's, uh, it's unquestionable that technology, let's say productivity technology, uh, if, if super company X employs some new productivity technology, their workers don't generally get a raise because their wages aren't tied to their output. They're, you know, they're, they, they're in one way or the other being paid by the hour. Whereas if you're, you know, self-employed lawyer B and you get a productivity gain, you get to pocket that gain. And so there's no question that technology does rain down its benefits unequally. But that unsatisfaction you're talking about, is that, where, where do you, what are you attributing that to? Uh, or, or are you just saying, I don't know, it's a bunch of stuff? <laughs> well, I mean, I think it is a bunch of stuff. I'd say like some of it is, um, I mean, we can't deny um, sort of the privilege that white men have felt over time. And I think that when you're accustomed to privilege, uh, equality feels like discrimination. And I think that, yes, actually, things have gotten more equal. I think things have gotten better in many regards, according to sort of a perspective that views equality as good. But if you don't hold that perspective, actually, that's, that feels very bad. And then like that uh, combined with um, uh, sort, of, uh, sort of trends towards uh, the, the rest of the world, basically establishing a quality of life that is comparable to the United States. It's like, again, that makes us feel bad. It's like not like, hey, ray, hooray, rest of the world, but rather it's like, oh, man, we've lost our edge. Um, and so I think that it's, uh, there are a lot of factors that go into it that I, I don't know that you can really separate them out. But I think that the consolidation of wealth caused by technology is, is one of those factors. And I think that's certainly one that's only going to continue. Okay, so let's do that one next. So your assertion was that whenever you get historically uh, distributions of wealth that are uneven past a certain point, that revolution is the result. And I would, I would challenge that but because I think that might leave out one thing, which is if, if you look at historic revolutions, you look at Russia, you look at uh, the French Revolution and all of that, you had people living in poverty. Um, that was really it. Like people in, in Paris couldn't afford bread. A day's wage bought a loaf of bread. And yet we don't have any precedent of a prosperous society where the median is high, the bottom quartile is high uh, relative to the world. We don't have any historic precedent of that being uh, a revolution occurring there, do we? Well, I, th that, I think you're right. Um, I think that uh, but civil unrest is not just in the form of sort of open re rebellion against the government. But I think that increased sort of, um, I would say if there is an open rebellion against the government, I think probably that's sort of the handmaid's tale future. Um, I think it's going to be someone harking back to the um, a fictionalized glory days and then basically getting enough people on board 
um, who are unhappy for a wide variety of other things. But I agree, no one's going to go um, uh, overthrow the government because they didn't get the, as big a flat screen TV as their neighbor. Um, but I think that the fact that they don't have as big a flat screen TV as their neighbor could create an anxiety that can be harvested by others by sort of uh, leveraged into other causes. And so well, I, I, I go ahead. No, no, no. I was going to say that. Yeah, I think that um, um, my yeah my worry isn't that. AI is, or technology is going to leave people without the ability to buy bread. I think quite the opposite. Um, I think it's more of kind of a, like Brazil future, uh, the movie, where basically it's like we just um, mm. normalize basically random terrorist assaults. Um, and we and we see that right now. It's like, there's like mass shootings on a weekly basis. We're like, yeah, that's just normal. That's just the new normal. Um, and I think that the new normal gets increasingly destabilized over time. And that's what worries me. So do you think uh, you, you take a person who's in, say, the bottom quartile of income in the United States, and you go to them with this deal, you say, hey, I'll double your salary, but I'm going to triple the billionaire's salary. Do you think the average person would take that? No. I mean, really? well, I, I, let me really? just, let me they would say that. they would say, no, I do not want to double my salary. If, I think that they if, would say um, uh, they would say yes and then resent it. Um, uh, I, I don't know the exact breakdown of how that would go, but I think um, uh, probably, yeah, they would say like, yeah, I'll double my salary. Um, but then they would secretly, well, not even so secretly, uh, resent the fact that someone else benefited from that. So then you raise an interesting point about. Um, Finding identity in a in a post work world, I guess is that a fair way to say it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. So it's really interesting to me because Keynes wrote an essay in um, in the Depression, and he said that by the year two thousand, people would only be working fifteen hours a week, and uh, because of the rate of economic growth. And interestingly, he got the rate of economic growth right. In fact, he was a little low on it. And it is also interesting that if you run the math, if you wanted to live like the average person lived in 1930, you know, no medical insurance, no air conditioning, growing your own food, 600 square feet, all of that, you could do it on 15 hours uh, a week of work. So in that sense, he was right as well. But what history didn't predict is that there is no end to human wants. And so humans continue to work extra hours because they just want more things. And so do you think that that dynamic will end? Oh, no, I think the desire to work will remain. I think I the see. capability to get productive output will go away. I think the... Um, that the, had the most problem with that, because all technology does is increases human productivity. So to say somehow human productivity becomes less productive because of technology, I, I just, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm not seeing <laughs> that, that connection. That's all admit, technology does is increases human productivity. Well, but not all humans are equal. Um, I would say like not every human has equal capability to take advantage of those productive gains. I would say like, for example, maybe bringing it back to AI, I think that um, the most important part of the AI is not the technology powering it, but the data behind it. And I think the uh, access to data uh, and is sort of the, the training set behind the AI and access to data is incredibly unequal. Um, whereas I think that Moore's law democratizes sort of the CPU but nothing democratizes basically a consolidation of data into uh, fewer and fewer hands. And then those people 
even if they only have the same technology as someone else, they have all the data to actually make that technology into a useful feature. And so I think the, um, yes, uh, everyone's going to have a, a equal access to the technology because it's going to become increasingly cheap. It's already staggeringly cheap. It's amazing how cheap computers are. Um, but it just doesn't matter because they don't have the ac equal access to the data and thus can't get the benefit, the same benefit of the technology. But, uh, okay, I guess I'm just not seeing that because um, smartphone with an AI doctor can turn anybody in the world into a moderately equipped clinician. Oh, no, I disagree with that entirely. Um, you having a, a doctor in your pocket doesn't make you a doctor. It no, means that basically someone sold you a great doctor service, well, and that no, person is really good. Fair enough, fair enough. But, but um, with that, somebody who has no education living in some part of the world can, can follow a protocol of take temperature, uh, enter symptoms, this, 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 and all of a sudden they are empowered to essentially be uh, a, a great doctor because but, that technology magnified what they could do. Sure, but who would you sell that to? Because everyone else around you has that same app. And right, I mean, I, it's, it's a... It's a Example, I'm just kind of pulling out randomly, but to say that a, a small amount of knowledge can be amplified with AI in a way that, that makes that small amount of knowledge all of a sudden worth vastly more. Yeah, but again, I, going with that example, I'd say, so I agree there's going to be the doctor app that's going to diagnose every problem for you and it's going to be amazing. And whoever owns the app is going to be really rich and everyone else will have equal access to it. But if you're there's no way you can just download the app and start practicing for your neighbors because they're going to be like, why do I want to talk to you? I'm going to talk to the doctor app because it's already in my phone. But, that's, but, that's, yeah. but, but the counterexample would be like Google. Google minted half a dozen billionaires, right? Google came out, half a dozen people became billionaires because of it. But that isn't to say nobody else got value out of the existence of Google. Like everybody gets value out of it. Everybody can use Google to magnify their ability. And yes, oh, it made yeah. billionaires. You're right about that part. The doctor app person made money, but that doesn't lessen my ability to use that to also increase my income. Well, I, I, I actually think that it does. I would say, um, yes, the doctor app will provide, you know, fantastic healthcare to the world, but there's no way that anybody can make money off the doctor app except for the doctor app. Okay. Well, we're actually running out of time. This has been like the <laughs> fastest hour. So I have to ask this, though, because, you know, at the beginning, I asked about science fiction, and you, you said, you know, of your possible worlds of the future, one of them you turned was Star Trek. Star Trek is a world where all of these issues we're talking about, we got over, and uh, everybody was able to live their life to their maximum potential and all of that. So uh, this has been kind of a downer uh, hour. And so what's the path in your mind to close with that gets us to the Star Wars, Star Trek? Did I, have I been saying Star Wars all that time? No, no Star Trek. Okay, and I'd say, the Star Trek future. Give me that scenario. Well, I mean, I guess the, if you want to continue on the downer theme, the Star Trek history, uh, we, the TV shows talk about the glory days, but they all cite back to, there were right. very, very dark periods before uh -huh. the Star Trek universe came about. Um, but it might be that we need to get through those. Who knows? But I would say, ultimately, on the other side of it, we need to find a way to um, either um, do much better progressive redistribution of wealth um, or uh, create a society that is much more comfortable with massive income inequality. Um, and I don't know which of those is easier.
I, I think it's interesting that I said, give me a, like a utopian scenario. And you're like, well, that one's even going to get hard to get to. There's going to be like, we're going to have to, I think they had like multiple nuclear wars and whatnot. Um, yeah. But, but I mean, you do think that we'll make it or there's a possibility that we will. Yeah, I think we will. And I think that also maybe the kind of a positive thing as well is I don't think that we should be terrified of a future where we build incredible AIs to go out and explore the universe. That's, that's not a terrible outcome. I think it's only a terrible outcome if you view humanity as special. If you instead view humanity as just, we're a product of Earth, and our product, like, and we could be a version that can become obsolete, and that doesn't need to be bad. All right. Well, that is a, um, we'll leave it there. Uh, that's a big thought to finish with. I want to thank you, David, for a fascinating hour. Hey, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, Byron Reese hosts another podcast about AI called the AI Minute. Every day, it's a minute or two of daily reflections about AI. It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice. And in addition, it's an Alexa skill. So it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.